Welcome to the Unstoppable Freedom Podcast. I'm Jimmy Page. The Unstoppable Freedom Alliance is creating a movement of millions of everyday Americans with a passion for freedom. And even though freedom is under attack everywhere in American life and even around the world, here's the good news. There is a growing movement across the country to do something, to stand up, to fight back and defend our liberties. Well, today we're joined by someone who is doing just that. Our guest today is Mike Barry, General Counsel for First Liberty Institute. Mike, welcome to Unstoppable Freedom. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. You bet, man. I know your schedule's tight, but we're going to make the most of our time. You know, I have really enjoyed getting to know you over the last several months. But as we get started, let me tell our audience a little bit more about you. Okay, Mike is the General Counsel for First Liberty Institute. He joined First Liberty in 2013 after serving for seven years on active duty as an attorney with the U.S. Marine Corps. Among your numerous positions within the Marine Corps, you deployed to Afghanistan in 2008. And from 2009 to 2012, you served as an adjunct professor of law at the U.S. Naval Academy. Mr. Barry continues to proudly serve our nation as a member of the Marine Corps Reserve. And as general counsel for First Liberty, Mike is responsible for leading all aspects of First Liberty's legal operations. He's testified before Congress. He speaks across the nation about religious freedom. This I found really interesting. You earned your bachelor's degree at Texas A&M. That's forgivable. Uh, but the other one, the law degree from Ohio State University, seriously, um, I'm going to have to press in on that a little bit. But most importantly, Mike's a man of God, and you're going to truly love this guy. Okay. So I want to start just by telling you thanks. Thanks for serving as a Marine. Uh, our audience really uh, respects and honors your service. Really thankful for that. Well, it's certainly a privilege and an honor to serve. So thank you for that. You bet. I got to tell you, uh, after 9-11, a little fact about me, I actually called the, the uh, Marine Corps recruiting station and asked if, if I was too old to, uh, to enlist. And I, uh, probably my wife is thankful that I was, uh, and, and, uh, but, I, but I wanted to. I was compelled by what was happening in the world, and it was, uh, you know, it was motivating me to do that. That's All right. Awesome. Listen to this. Uh, you, caught, you taught at the Naval Academy. You know, we were neighbors then. I lived in Maryland and we were down, uh, down near the U.S. Naval Academy quite a bit. Did you live there for a number of years then? We did. We lived in Annapolis, um, not too far from the Academy grounds. We were just up, uh, just uh, not, I mean, maybe a mile from downtown Annapolis. That is a gorgeous part of the country, isn't it? It is. It is. We miss it a lot. We've still got a lot of good friends there. Uh, a lot of good memories, but uh, we are we are Texans through and through. So we, <laughs> we had to, we had to make it back to the promised land. I'm telling you, you picked the right spot. Well, listen, I know you graduated from Ohio State, but seriously, do you really have to say the Ohio State every time that comes up? <laughs> well, it is the Ohio State <laughs> University, and I'm telling you, it's getting old already. It's getting old, but well, let, let's get into the show. I know our audience is excited to hear about what you're doing with First Liberty. Uh, well, first of all, what was it like serving as a Marine and being deployed to Afghanistan? What was that like? Boy, uh, uh, it's actually a question I haven't gotten in quite a while. It's, it's, it's get, it gets further and f- further in the rearview mirror yeah. uh, as, as each year goes by. So, um, I mean, first, I would say being in the Marine Corps was certainly one of the most rewarding and fulfilling uh, experiences of my life. Uh, I joined. Uh, sort of similar story to you. I joined right after 9-11. Um, I was, that was a large motivation for me to join the military. Um, I guess that means I'm not, uh, I'm younger than you. Uh, so <laughs> I knew uh, that was coming. Um, but, you know, so being a Marine was something that I, I felt called to. Uh, all right. So quick, quick digression, just a little bit more about my background. Yeah. Um, when I went to Texas A&M, I went there on a full ROTC scholarship, uh, but it was an Air Force ROTC scholarship. And I, I wanted to be a pilot or something like that in the Air Force. And when I got to Texas A&M as a young, you know, 18, 19 year old punk, really, um, who had no, you know, I did not have my wits about me. I was very immature um, intellectually as well as spiritually. And I thought that college was really, you know, what I had seen in the movies, you know, Animal House and 
and, and things like that. You know, uh, I thought college was going to be the greatest time of my life, you know, for, for going out and, and having fun. And I really wasn't ready for the demands uh, and the level of maturity that it required to, to do something like ROTC, which is a, you know, it's like having a second job. It's like, you know, you, we, we often talk about student athletes and, and uh, the responsibilities and demands that are put on their time. Uh, being an ROTC at a place like Texas A&M, which really has a, a, uh, a full-on military academy component to it, uh, is very similar. And I was not ready for that. I was not prepared and equipped for what, what, what that required of me. And I very quickly, um, I'll just make a long story short, I did not finish at Texas A&M in the ROTC. I gave up my full Air Force scholarship. Wow. And, wow. Um, but uh, much to my dad, my parents chagrin, you know, because I'm sure they were excited about that. Yeah, he's really, really happy when I told him that I was uh, giving up that that full ride. Um, but I would have loved to have been there for that conversation. <laughs> um, uh, you know, my dad's a very patient man, fortunately for me. So, um, so you know, I ended up uh, looking for a job and. Uh, I was newly newlywed. I'd, I'd, I'd only been married for uh, what, just a little over a year, maybe a year, not even a year and a half at that point. So you so, really, you really needed to be employed at that point. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a way to, way to impress the the new father in law, <laughs> right? Like, you know, Classic. Uh, yeah. So uh, again, long story short, I started looking for opportunities. I had a lot of interviews because um, I had, you know, I had I had to degree from Texas A&M, which is, you know, pretty reputable school. Uh, it was in a field that was pretty highly sought after, you know, information technology and operations management, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I got to tell you, every job interview I had, when they started telling me about what the job was, I was just like, this sounds awful. You know, this just does not sound like what I want to be doing with my life. Mm -hmm. And I began praying about it and say, God, what do you want me to do? And, and as I mentioned earlier, that there was just that thing in the back of my mind that just kept saying, like, you need to serve, you know, especially right now with everything that's happening in our country. And we've just been attacked. And mm -hmm. it's like, this is the time to. And and I looked at my situation. So I, I was newly married, but we didn't have any kids. We did not have a mortgage. We just lived in a little, you know, two bedroom apartment mm -hmm. uh, outside of Dallas, Texas. And. I mean, the only bills we had were college loans and a car payment, and that's it. Mm. And so I was like, you know, I've never been more positioned to go do this than right now because, yeah. you know, I'm only it's only really going to be affecting two people. Right. And so I joined. I, I joined the Marine Corps. Um, so that was what led me to join. It's amazing. Uh, and so your question was, what was it like being in the Marines and then being deployed to Afghanistan? Yeah. So from day one, I, I really joined the Marines because I felt like that's what I was called to do. Mm. I felt like, I, you know, I, I, when I talk to young audiences today, especially if I go to a school or a university and I talk and, they, and people will ask me sometimes, what, what advice do you have for young people? And I always say, uh, I didn't come up with this, but I, I use it because I love it so much. And I said, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Mm -hmm. and, um, and once you find out why you were created and why God put you on this planet, I said, you better pursue that with near reckless abandon, not reckless abandon, but near reckless abandon. Right. And, um, and pursue it passionately with everything yep. you have. And that's the way I approached the Marine Corps. I wanted to be the yes. best Marine I could be. I wanted to do everything. I wanted every experience I could possibly get as a Marine. Mm. And I just, I loved being a Marine. I still do. It's phenomenal. You know, I, I love the I'm Marine jealous. Corps. I'm jealous. I mean, I have to tell you, I am jealous. <laughs> you know, I have a history of military service in my family uh, going all the way back to actually to the American Revolution. I'm an eighth, eighth generation descendant. Uh, son of the American Revolution. So I have that in my background. And to have not served in that way, I always have felt like, boy, there's just something missing. But I think that's part of why I'm so excited about serving, uh, leading the, the Unstoppable Freedom Alliance, because I get to enter into the fray. I get to work with people like you, with our military and others, and, and really fight for freedom in the way that God has wired me. So you talked about calling. 
And I, I always talk about there, you have a calling and a cause, you know, and both of those, one is you're called by God um, into, into his service. And then the question becomes, what's the cause? What's the thing bigger than you that you can pursue? And like you said, you don't pursue something that's not a calling or a cause with that reckless abandon, if you will, if it's something you're not passionate about. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite films of all time is Chariots of Fire. Mm-hmm. And I know many, uh, you know, who are with us have probably seen it. Yep. Um, and, uh, but there's, if you haven't seen it, I'm not necessarily giving anything. Well, it may be a little <laughs> bit of a spoiler, spoiler alert. Okay. But, we're ready. Uh, a little bit of a spoiler alert, but there's a scene that's just always stood out to me. Um, and it, it, it's the scene when, uh, Eric Little, who's the main character of the movie, um, and he is a, a, an Olympic runner. And this is back. Uh, I can't remember what year it was, but early 20th century, you know, mm-hmm. early 1900s. Uh, and I think it was the Paris Olympics. So mm-hmm. whatever year that was. Um, and uh, Eric Little was running. It was it was an athlete for Great Britain. He was originally from Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to live in Scotland. So I sort of have an affinity for Eric Little oh, from that perspective as well. And I'm also a runner. So um, or at least I used to be, uh, um, uh, uh, father time is, is, is catching up to me. I understand that. Don't even start, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but you know, there's the scene when, when Eric's sister is pleading with him to become a missionary in China, um, because they're, they're believers and they believe in missions and the importance of evangelism and going and doing overseas missions and Eric. And, and so in this powerful, powerful scene, uh, Eric, and, 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 and you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this in just a second here. So Eric says to his sister, you know, and he finally kind of comes to his decision and, and, and he has this choice, right? Beca- be a missionary or be an Olympic athlete. And he's, tr- he's wrestling with, with God and with himself over this dilemma. And he finally comes to his sister and he says to her, I believe that God has called me to be a missionary. And she's like, oh, you know you know, thank you for finally, you know, seeing things my way, essentially, right. you know, and, and, and she's relieved and she says, okay, now, you know, all right, no, can we dispense with this Olympic running nonsense and let's get on the first boat to China and that kind of thing. Right. And, and he, but then he stops and he says, but God made me fast. Mm. And when I run, I feel his pleasure upon me. Mm. And to deny that would be to hold him in contempt. Mm. And that's how I feel about that's how I try to approach life. And that's how I I approached being a Marine Mm. is that, um, you know, there are many things, there are many causes, like you said, Jimmy, that, that uh, I can throw myself behind that I believe in uh, whether it's the first amendment, whether it's religious freedom, free speech, the second amendment, pro-life, et cetera. There's a lot of great causes out there, but I always tell people find that thing whatever it is in your life to where when you do it, you feel God's pleasure upon you. Mm. You know, you know that, that, that God is saying, this is why I've created you. And then that, and then conversely, if you were to deny it, you would Mm. be holding God in contempt. So that was for me, a, a big part of that was being a Marine. And I also knew that being a Marine meant that you had to do Marine things, right? And that, and, and during a time of conflict, that can mean going into harm's way. Yeah. And um, so before I left for Afghanistan in 2008, uh, I'll be honest, I was scared. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew that we were going into a very dangerous part of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I knew based upon the type of unit that I was uh, uh, attached to mm-hmm. and the mission that we had been given that this was not going to be, uh, right. So that, uh, you knew. you knew it was going to be conflict. Yeah. You knew, well, you, you knew you were going to be heading into danger and that you had a specific role to play and it. And so you knew what was ahead. I would imagine. Yeah. And to paraphrase from George Orwell, uh, and, and, and his, uh, uh, seminal book, animal farm, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all military service is dangerous but not all military service is the same type of dangerous, right? Some, some, some types of military service is more dangerous than others. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I had a lot of friends 
who are, uh, and, and through no fault of their own and, and, and not to any discredit, but a lot of friends who their deployment experience primarily consisted of, of, of being on a very well fortified and protected air base mm. um, where they had a lot of, you know, first world amenities, air yeah. conditioning, internet, uh, video games, Sure. You know, steak and lobster in the in the in the oh. in the chow hall on Fridays. Oh, I'm ready. And and um, my deployment experience. Was Are you part a, of the recruiting team right now? I mean, what are you doing? <laughs> what, what's happening yeah. right now? Yeah. Um, so Afghanistan in 2008 was was a far cry from that. Uh, yeah. The 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 way I describe it is uh, everything that I cared about on this planet had to fit within my backpack. So wow. all of my earthly possessions had to fit into my rucksack. Wow. Um, and the most important things had were water, food, and ammunition, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, yes. it, it, and, and, and not even necessarily in that order. In that order, right. Um, and well. I got to talk to my wife mm-hmm. once a month on a satellite phone for about 10 to 15 minutes. Wow. Uh, and that, and so, uh, anybody who's ever been in that sort of experience, whether you've been a, a, a missionary in a, in a remote austere area of the world, you know, that when you only talk for 15 minutes a month to your loved ones, it's, it's hard to have those conversations because it's, it ends up being a lot of small talk because you can't get into anything deep or heavy in 15 minutes yeah. and then, and then delay it for another month. So you end yeah. up just having a lot of small talk and, yeah, and it's not particularly satisfying and there yeah. comes a point when you're like, you know what? I'd almost rather not do the call, yeah. except for the fact that you feel obligated to to call your wife, right? So, right. Um, well, there's a lot of stress, I think, on military yeah. families, and I know that you know serving on serving in that capacity on the front lines is a big sacrifice. But interesting, let's shift gears a little bit. Yeah, I know that you're you're serving in a different way on the front lines. So there's this battle for freedom in a military sense and maybe in a political sense around the world, but there's also a battle, a real fight for freedom here. And one of the things uh, that interests me most, and I think our audience, I've got several good friends and, and business partners who are retired Navy SEALs. And you're currently involved in a very high profile case that relates to both, both religious and medical freedom as you represent 35 U.S. Navy SEALs and Naval Special Warfare personnel, um, you, in many ways, you're, you're taking on the Department of Defense. I mean, in fact, you are. Uh, tell us about this case. Tell us about this case. Tell us about where we are today. Are we winning? Are we losing? What's happening there? Well, the case involves, uh, as you said, 35 Navy SEALs and other special warfare members. Uh, First Liberty Institute, um, our, our, our law firm, represents these SEALs and, and, and other uh, special warfare operators who each one of them has a sincere religious objection to the COVID-19 vaccine. And um, they've asked for religious accommodations from the vaccine. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them has been denied. And um, and, and from a no one received accommodation, not single, not a single one received accommodation. Well, and that's correct. And, and not just our clients, but actually across the entire Department of Defense. Right. Wow. So whether you're Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, wow. uh, there have been no religious exemptions, period, from the vaccine. None. Zero. Not, not one. And yet tens of thousands of these requests have been submitted. Incredible. Incredible. I mean, I I didn't know that. I mean, I don't think I don't think anybody knows that. I mean, some people do. You do. You're an insider. But we see 35. And what we don't see is that literally the tens of thousands of others who have who have submitted and also been denied. That's correct. Wow. And, and And the Department of Defense publicly states this. I think they're actually proud of it. Wow. Um, I, I but, you know, I think I think they think that it somehow shows that they're being consistent or treating everybody the same. Um, and, you know, the real irony here or not even irony, but just the real outrage is that although they have granted zero religious accommodations, they have publicly stated that they've granted hundreds, possibly even thousands of medical and administrative exemptions. Yes. So that's a public statement by the Department of Defense that wow. we we are treating religion as if it is a second class, second tier 
uh, legal status. And that is unconstitutional. It's unlawful. And that is the argument that we made in court is that you cannot have a, so uh, well, let's, let me back up, Jimmy, to be clear, yeah. this lawsuit that we filed did not challenge the actual vaccine mandate itself. Okay. Uh, there are other lawsuits out there that have done that. Yeah. Ours is saying, look, if the Department of Defense wants to issue a vaccine mandate, it can do that, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon issues orders and directives and regulations all the time. Mm-hmm. Issuing orders is what the military does. Mm-hmm. And generally, yes, our troops are required to follow orders with one very important caveat, and that is that the order has to be lawful. It cannot mm-hmm. conflict with or abrogate uh, the constitutional rights of those whom, to whom it applies. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what's happened here. Is okay, when so real, DOD, quick, real quick, sorry? real quick, that is fascinating because there is a prevailing narrative that when you join the military you suspend your constitutional rights that somehow, hey, now you're you're property of the state, you're property of the government, and now you don't have the same protections. I mean, I I hear that. Right. And, 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 you know, the old saying that maybe our our, our dads or our grandfathers would would say back in the day was uh, when I was in the army, you know, I was we always told if if the army wanted you to have a wife, they'd issue you one. Right. Or if the army wanted you to have an opinion, they would issue you one. Those, you know, that, that's what you would hear from the greatest generation. OK, but it is a myth mm. and it's a myth that we learned. It's a lesson that we learned the hard way through places like Nuremberg. Yeah. Right. So if you're a student of World War II history, you know that Nuremberg is where we had the trials for all the war criminals yes. uh, that came out of Nazi Germany. And many of them tried to argue I was just following orders. Mm. I was ordered to execute all those Jewish people in the concentration camp. I was just following orders Mm. and it didn't work in a court of law. They said, no, you don't get the right to kill somebody, to murder them and say, well, I was just following my orders. Mm. And the United States, and that was Nazi Germany. The United States itself learned this lesson at a place called Mi Lai. If Mm. you're a student of Vietnam history, you know that during the Vietnam conflict, there was this thing called the My Lai Massacre. It was a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And the American officer who was held accountable, his name is Bill Cowley, William Cowley. That's what he said. I was just following orders. Mm-hmm. And in the American system of justice, we said, no, you don't get to use that as an excuse because right. you not only are you not obligated to follow an unlawful order, you have a duty to challenge an unlawful order. Wow. And that's, ex- and so to bring that full circle, that's what we have here with our Navy SEALs is uh, if there, if somebody issues you an order to do something that violates your constitutional rights, you have no obligation to follow that order. And, mm-hmm. and so that was really the, the main argument we made in court was that this order violates the constitution Love it. because the department of defense is not allowing for people of faith Regardless of what faith they happen to be, Christian, Jewish, whatever, right? That if you have a sincere religious objection to this vaccine, it's a foregone conclusion. It is a predetermined outcome mm. that your exemption request is going to be denied. Mm. And, and like I said a few minutes ago, uh, so that in and of itself is, is wrong. But then when you add to that, the fact that the Department of Defense has granted hundreds I mean, who knows, maybe even thousands of, of non-religious exemptions. Mm. Now you have a situation where they're treating non-religious categories more favorably than they're treating religion. And our constitution, our first amendment says you don't get to do that. The government cannot do that. I love that. I, I mean, this is such a strong argument, right? And I know that, I know you've gone to court, you've made arguments. I know that the, we've, we've won at least uh, a temporary, we have a temporary win on the, on the board for sure. And I, I was struck by a couple of things that were said about this. I know the judge said the Navy service members in this case seek to vindicate the very freedoms they have sacrificed so much to protect the COVID-19 pad- pandemic provides the government no license to abrogate those freedoms. There is no COVID-19. I want to, I want to say this strongly. There is no COVID-19 exception to the first amendment and there's no military exclusion from our constitution. I love the way the judge 
found that to be true? Because I think that's your very argument, isn't it? That's exactly right. And, and, and one really important historical point that needs mm-hmm. to be made here, uh, because as you can imagine, there are people who are not happy with this decision and who, are, who say, but this is a pandemic, right? Even though mm-hmm. uh, it's a pandemic with a 99 point something percent survivability rate, Yes. Um, and, and, and the vaccines have now been shown to be highly ineffective, at least against the latest variants of yes. the virus. Um, but nevertheless, they say this is a pandemic. The normal rules shouldn't apply. Right. My response to that is, uh, you know, well, first of all, I'm in, in, in legal speak, I'm what would be called a textualist or an originalist. Right. I believe in reading and understanding uh, a, a, a legal document according to its own words, right? And, and, and the understanding, the common understanding of those words at the time it was written. All right. Mm. So uh, when it comes to the constitution, that means we have to view the constitution in the way that the framers intended for it to be viewed, the people who wrote the constitution. So let's get in our time capsule or our DeLorean, whatever you want to use. Let's go back <laughs> to the constitutional convention. Mm. And we have to remind ourselves, the men who wrote the words, the first amendment, they were no strangers to wars, to Mm. plagues, to famines, to rebellions, to insurrections, to, I mean, you name it, right? They experienced all of it. Mm. And yet when they wrote the first amendment, they didn't say, hmm, you know, maybe we ought to make sure that this provision for the free exercise of religion, maybe we ought to make an exception or you know, mm. put a little asterisk or a footnote and say this, this provision does not apply during a time of pandemic, or this doesn't apply during a time of war, or this doesn't apply to the military, because mm. those are, you know, that's different. Or, you know, the kind of whataboutism that we that we yeah. that we get a lot these days. They could have done that. They were smart, brilliant, genius oh, yeah. people. Yeah. But they didn't. They chose not to. They chose to say, despite, look, this is a group of men who knew that we were about to go to war with King George and Great Britain, the most powerful military on the planet at that time, the most powerful empire on the planet. And yet they said, nope, this First Amendment is this important to us. We're not going to make exceptions to it. So, yes, as you pointed out, that's exactly what the court held. Yeah. And and we got that that victory, at least mm-hmm. preliminarily at the district court stage, precisely because I think the judge and the court recognized uh, the exactly the words that you just read. Yeah, this is super important to the average citizen. Sometimes we look at the military and we think, oh, it, it doesn't apply to our life. Right. But it's super important to the rest of us, because right now, entire states like Maine are removing the religious exemption from their from uh, the review for this medical vaccination, these mandates. They're they're reviewing it and removing it in multiple states as we speak because of the emergency authorization stuff that people are saying. But I love this because this will apply to all of us, right? Every person in uniform has the right to request and be granted a religious exemption. This This isn't about the 35 SEALs and servicemen and women. It's about the future of our military. And I think it's about the future of religious freedom for all of us as citizens. So um, thank you. Thanks for for serving. Thanks for going after that. We're praying for you and we're praying for that this goes all the way to the Supreme Court and we get a major win. I know you have a lot of experience doing that as well. Well, in, in, you know, you talked about th- this is about more than the military and you're exactly right. It's actually about national security. You know, uh, uh, military religious freedom is an issue that has been a passion of mine, mm-hmm. uh, going back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, right? A ca- your cause. Find your calling and find your cause. Yes, uh, yes. Defending and advocating for religious freedom in our military has been the cause that the Lord has placed upon my heart for years now. Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about it and the more I researched it, I really began to realize, and, and, and so I've been saying this, that, that religious freedom is a national security issue. So it's really about the security of our nation. And, and here's why. Um, if you kick out 35 Navy SEALs, right? Th- so these 35 SEALs that we represent collectively, 
300, more than 350 years of military experience, wow. more than 100 combat deployments. You can't replace that. You can't, you can't just go to boot camp and say, hey, give me 35 Navy SEALs with 350 years of experience and 100 combat deployments. Right. And then somebody, you know, rubs their hands together and poof, there they are. That doesn't happen. Mm. It takes years to develop that kind of leadership, expertise, experience, et cetera. And so if you kick them out, that's going to leave a void right mm. now. Extrapolate that across the entire Department of Defense and look at the numbers, the sheer numbers of people who are being kicked out or being threatened with kicked out. Right. And they're not just special warfare operators. They're pilots. Right. Our military pilots who are also extremely valuable and very difficult to, and costly to replace. And then you look at I mean, I was just a lawyer. You know, you can probably you know, replace a lawyer pretty easily in the military. Uh-huh. Well, um, maybe. But, but the the proverbial trigger pullers and door kickers. All right. Uh, and then uh, now th- that's just purely from the mechanical like, OK, you know, uh, I, I've got some bean counter who's basically moving you know, personnel on a spreadsheet. Okay. I need a hundred guys in this unit and a hundred guys in this unit, et cetera, et cetera. But I want you to think about it from a bigger perspective. I want everybody who's listening and watching to think about this is what is the message that this is sending yes. to America and to America's mothers and fathers who have to sign to allow their, their, their son or daughter to join the military. Mm-hmm. When the military is essentially saying, if you're a person of faith, or if you have deeply held convictions and values, about what is important, what you put in your body, what, what how you worship God or how yeah. you worship your creator. Yeah. And, the mil- and the military is essentially saying, we don't care. We don't value those things, right? Um, you have wow. no rights. If you are a person of faith, your rights are suspended. Uh-huh. If you're in the military, do you think any mother or father in America is going to give their blessing for their son or daughter to go join the military or or even... Those young people who say, people like you and me, when we were younger yeah. and the nation had a call to service and there was a need or a crisis that arose. And, and I wanted to join and I wanted to serve going back to post 9-11, hmm. but the military had been sending out these signals. Hey, we need people in the fight. We need people to serve. But if you're a person of faith, you're not welcome here because yeah. that's yeah. exactly what people are being told in this country right now. If you are a person of faith, you are not welcome in the military. What is that going to do from a readiness standpoint? Oh, I mean, you, I, I'm taking notes because I can't believe what you're telling me. And you think about this, the level of cumulative experience that we're losing through this uh, purge, if you will, some people have referred to it as a purge, 350 years of experience, not only that, but the investment, the financial investment that we have in each one of these folks is a disaster, right? And that's true. So let's extrapolate it, right? We've got our military, then we've got doctors and nurses. Can't You can't replace them on a dime. We're trying to do it with the National Guard, which is irresponsible at best, heroic on their part for stepping in, but absolutely irresponsible from a leadership perspective. We talk about pilots, we talk about different positions that cannot be replaced easily. And we're we're just throwing away that cumulative experience. We're putting people in buckets of essential versus non-essential, which is absolutely incredible to me, especially when you consider this military piece. Um, most people that are attracted to the military, I have to believe, love America. Why else would you even consider sacrificing your own life and well-being if you didn't love and believe in what you were defending? I mean, we're defending freedom at home. We're promoting freedom around the world. We are freedom fighters as a, as a country. So to, to pull this idea of you know, religious exemption or belief to segregate and to discriminate against a whole class of people, a whole group of people based upon their belief system or even just their personal medical decisions, your recruiting efforts in the military are going to dry up like crazy. We're, we're going to have a, a lack of resources, people resources to defend freedom, won't we? Well, it's not that the recruiting efforts are going to have problems. Mm. They already are. Jeez. Right. I mean, the, the, the numbers from inside the military are starting to bear that out, mm. that we're having a hard time finding people. So they're starting. So, so what do they inevitably do? They have to lower their standards. Right. They have mm. to start making exceptions for people with criminal records and things like that, or people with a history of, of, of drug use uh, to start opening, wi- widening that aperture. And you talked about, you know, the love of country. 
being one of the main motivators for people to serve. Uh, it certainly is and was for me, but let's think about it. Let, let me put it slightly differently. Okay. Yeah. That um, the message now that the military is sending across America to people of faith is you're not welcome, right? Yes. We, that, that, that you, uh, we don't want you. And, you know, famously, I, I believe this was G.K. Chesterton who said this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may have been somebody else, but for whatever reason, I think it's Chesterton. And he said, the true soldier doesn't fight because he hates the enemy that stands in front of him. He fights because he loves the country that mm. stands behind him. And uh, the, pro- the, the problem that we're going to find ourselves running into in this America, I mean, in America, is that I think we're now heading down the path of, of causing people to hate the country or at least question yes, the country yes. that stands behind them and, and, and the motivations. And you mentioned the word purge earlier. Yes. And really, I don't know of any other way to describe it. Then mm-hmm. it, it, this is an apparent political purge, right? Mm-hmm. You combine the vaccine mandate and the fact that people of faith are the ones that get the, sh- the short stick, right? Um, and you combine that with the recent uh, headlines about the, the, uh, the Department of Defense's counter-extremism you know, uh, activities and, and these efforts that they've taken to get rid of extremists. Look, the second, the, the, the president of the United States went on record and said that white supremacists are the greatest threat to national security. Yes. So then the secretary of defense goes on record and says, yes, but 99.9% of people in the military are not extremists. Okay. Which one is it? Right. Right. Which one is it? And, and so, uh, obviously, we know that the president as commander in chief outranks the secretary of defense. So of course the department of defense took its marching orders from the white house and, and, and spent millions and millions of dollars to create a countering extremism working group to try to come up with a new definition of extremism. And this new definition of extremism now captures conduct. It prohibits and bans and even criminalizes conduct that's always been protected by the first amendment. Mm. Right. And, and so once again, the military is telling people, I mean, I, I'll give you a couple of examples. Yeah. If somebody advocates mm. and advocate, the definition of advocates can even be include clicking like or share on social media. Um, if they advocate for a cause that would discriminate against a protected class, that is extremism that can be punished by by uh, disciplinary action in the military. And, and so when we say, so that sounds good, right? Oh, yeah, I don't want anybody advocating for discrimination. Mm. But, but the, the devil is in the details, Jimmy. If you look at what, how they define that, what is a discriminating against a protected class? Mm. That can mean if a, pers- if a Christian simply says that I believe that marriage should be between one man and one woman, mm. they're, they're now an extremist. Or at least they, they they could be accused of being an extremist and punished for that. If 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 somebody says, "I believe that life begins at conception and that we should protect life in the womb," right? They could be accused and charged in the military with discriminating against a woman's right to abortion. And so, again, I I, I bring this full circle mm-hmm. and say, what message are we sending to people in this country about what it means to serve in our military? Right. It, That's right. Are we right. sending them the message that that our military is an institution that's going to uphold American values and it's going to protect everybody and serve everybody, regardless of what your beliefs are? Or is it saying, no, there is a particular political ideology that is now at the top of the totem pole and that we will subordinate everything else to that. And if you don't get in line with the political ideology that the current administration is promoting, you're not welcome in the military. What is that going to do to our recruiting numbers yeah. and our national security? And I'll, I'll make one last point on this and then I'll, and then, and, and I'll stop. But, uh, cause I know I'm, I'm, I'm beating this dead horse, but okay. Just look at, look at the headlines from the last two or three months. Okay. We had China firing a hypersonic weapon around the planet. We have North Korea, all right, making the threats that they always make yes, about yes. nuclear proliferation. We have Iran 
violating the deal that they struck with President Obama and enriching uranium. We also have uh, terrorists overrunning our embassy in Yemen and taking hostages. You know, guess who's called in for, for hostage situations in, in a situation like that? It's usually the Navy SEALs, mm-hmm. right? We've seen movies like Captain yes. Phillips right? and, and Zero Dark Thirty. Uh, and, and, and Benghazi and what happened there, the, the, that, that debacle, the Navy SEALs are the ones who are called in. So yeah, think yeah. about of the clients that First Liberty represents, they should be on that next flight to yeah, Yemen yeah. to help take back our embassy. They should be fighting for our, our national security. They should be fighting for our freedoms. And instead, they're fighting for their careers. And that is absolutely un-American. It is. I mean, the way you just the way you classified that for me makes this uh, it, it elevates the importance. You know, sometimes we look at it as a religious freedom issue, which it certainly is, but it's, it's part of a much bigger problem. Right. And I wrote down here, it's a total rejection of, of our traditional values. It's a, in fact, it's worse than a rejection. It's actually a dismantling of those values of those traditional values. And it's a political ideological religious purge going on in our military. And, and one, one word just kind of stuck out to me there, the word distraction. This is an absolute distraction from mission and our readiness to defend freedom, both here at home, but also to defend freedom uh, around the world. We're completely distracted with nonsense. And I'm, that's why I wanted you on the show, because you put things in context. You take it out of this case of religious freedom, and you expand it into the implications that are derived from it. What what does this do to our readiness? What does this do to our preparedness? And it is, I mean, I feel like we've got a massive leak in the boat. And I I couldn't be more thankful that you're that you're on this case and and that we're going to win. I I just believe that I believe good wins. In the end, I believe that you know uh, this. These are principles that are godly principles, and I believe that this goes back to our founding fathers trying to create an environment that respected people's faith and recognized the divine providence of God, which is also something that we're losing in some ways. But in in just a f- thank you, thank you for serving in this way, Mike. Seriously, I'm I'm super thankful for you and the team at at First Liberty. Um, uh, one more question. I know you've got a, a handful of pretty significant cases. I think you've identified maybe six, six key cases to watch for in 2020 as we continue to defend freedom. I know that one of them in particular is, is important to me because of my background with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and our access to uh, bring our faith to the field, so to speak. I know that you're handling one of those cases with a coach. Um, tell us, just tell us a, a little thumbnail sketch of a couple of cases that are cases you would consider are the ones to watch for 2022. Well, the first one you mentioned is the, the coach Kennedy case. So first Liberty Institute represents coach Joe Kennedy himself, a retired Marine uh, combat veteran. Uh, after serving in the Marine Corps, he became a, uh, a football coach hmm. for the, his old alma mater, um, Bremerton high school in Bremerton, Washington, which is just across the, the Puget Sound from Seattle and for years, he after every game, he would uh, take to a knee and he would offer a, you know, a brief 15 to 30 second prayer of Thanksgiving for uh, for basically for the opportunity to be a coach for what just happened on the field. And, you know, if a player got injured or something like that, he would always obviously pray that they would, you know, hey, I let Johnny you know recover quickly so he can get back out on the field with us. Uh, this ha- this went on for years without any complaint or without incident. And the old saying, no good deed goes unpunished. Uh, a, the, the school district uh, learned about, or actually it was the, the school district's attorneys learned about what Coach Kennedy was doing, said that they probably ought to investigate because they had some concerns about violating the so-called separation of church and state for a public high school football coach to be doing this. Mm-hmm. And the long story short is uh, they ordered him not to pray anymore. And, you know, coach, like I said, is a retired Marine combat veteran and they messed with the wrong Marine. You know, <laughs> I bet they I, did. I fought for these freedoms. I'm not about to give them up, you know, is sort of his, his response. And 
you know, they issued them all sorts of, of, of moving target directives, you know, well, you know, you, you can't pray with the players said, I'm, I don't, I'm not, I don't have any interest in playing, praying with the players. I just want to pray by myself, you know, well, you know, then it, then it was, well, you can't pray where people can see you praying. Right. And it was, uh, or, or, you know, it was ridiculous. Right. Cause he's, again, he's kneeling for 15 to 30 seconds after the game is over. Mm-hmm. You can't tell the difference between whether he's tying his shoe or looking for a lost contact lens, you know? And um, so basically the school said, if you want to talk to the fans, you can talk to the fans. If you want to talk to your players, you can talk to the players, but if you talk to God, you're fired. Mm. And uh, like I said, they messed with the wrong Marine. Uh, he ended up getting fired for praying after the game. And this case is now, uh, when I say it's at the U S Supreme court, the Supreme court has not yet taken it up. We're waiting and praying that the Supreme court will take this case. And if they do take the coach Kennedy case, it could have major implications nationwide for the rights of any, any person who's, who, who works for the government, because as a public, as a high school football coach at a public high school, you're a government employee. And it, what, that's, what's essentially at stake here as do government employees, just like we were talking about with people in the military, do you lose your rights just because you pull down a government paycheck every month, or do you retain those rights as an American citizen? And uh, obviously, we are hopeful that the Supreme Court will take up this case and, and rule in our favor. Um, other cases, we recently had oral argument at the Supreme Court on a major school choice case that originated in Maine. Hmm. Um, so that, that case will decide whether or not parents retain uh, the right to be able to send their kids to uh, a private Christian school or, or other religious school free from, free of, from government discrimination. Hmm. Uh, we have another case that, uh, similar to coach Kennedy, we're hopeful that the Supreme court will take up that originated in Virginia in Fredericksburg, Virginia, hmm. uh, in which we, uh, represent a church who, uh, had a, a, a former employee. And, uh, I don't want to get into the weeds of the legal doctrines or whatever. Suffice it to say the court in the state of Virginia decided that it was a better interpreter of the church's book of religious order than the church was. And so the the court was essentially telling the church how it was supposed to govern its own affairs when it came to employees and whatnot. And and essentially, I mean, I'm only very slightly paraphrasing here, Jimmy, is the court told the church, no, 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 you're interpreting your own religious doctrine the wrong way. Let us interpret it for you. And so we've appealed that to the U.S. Supreme Court. You can imagine the implications of that, right? Oh if that God. goes the wrong way. Um, and, you know, I know we're running short on time, but, the, you know, those are the ones that are just at the U.S. Supreme Court. And we've got a number of others that are sort of at, at one level below the Supreme Court. And then obviously you've got our, you know, our, our Navy SEALs case as well. Yeah. It's amazing to me. I mean, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about the, that our educational system is a primary battleground today, right? And especially, of course, with religious freedom, but also with parental rights in general, you know, the idea that the parents are the primary educator, the, the parents are the ones that are actually have the authority in our school system. And that's being chipped away over and over again. Um, and I love what you said is it's the same exact thing that's happening with the military. Do you suspend your constitutional rights and freedoms based on the job that you have? It is. I mean, that's a stunning question. And if if we lose, then there's no limitation to the to the way that that can be infringed upon. There's none. The government will have complete control over it. So I'm super thankful. Thanks for thanks for being on the front lines, Mike. I mean, you know, you've connected a lot of dots for me today to show that what seems like a, a single issue actually has broad implications for freedom across the board. And we're super thankful for everything you're doing, everything First Liberty is doing. Tell us a little bit, just in brief, tell us a little bit about First Liberty and how you're able to do what you're able to do. Well, First Liberty Institute is is a national religious liberty law firm. Uh, We're actually the largest legal organization in the country that focuses exclusively on defending religious liberty. That's the only, that's our only, we're a one issue firm. Love and uh, we defend religious liberty for all Americans. We do it free of charge. 
which is also important, I think, for people to know. Uh, we are 100% donor funded. So we never, ever send our clients a bill um, for the services we provide. And uh, I mean, going on what, uh, several decades now, uh, we have an incredible win rate of over 90% in all of our litigated cases. So uh, the Lord has, has blessed us. And, uh, and, I, and again, it goes back to the, 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 the subject we talked about at the very beginning. I think it's because those of us who work at First Liberty, this is our calling and our cause. We believe in what we're doing. We believe in the Constitution. We mm. believe in America. And uh, so at First Liberty, you know, we believe that we are one of the last best hopes for freedom in this country. For sure. And I love the fact that this is that everything is pro bono. Every all of the expenses associated with this are covered. A 91% win rate. I'm thinking that's Hall of Fame. You know, in baseball, <laughs> in baseball, you hit 340 Hall of Fame. In in legal practice, you hit ninety one percent. That's that's pretty much Hall of Fame, buddy. Yeah, I mean, it may be even higher than ninety one. I don't. I just know it's Crazy. over ninety. So uh, yeah, uh, but you know, like I said, we've we, we've been we've been very blessed over the years. Um, but I also think a lot of that is, is, is we're very strategic. You know, yeah. it, it. I think that's a lot, something a lot of people miss when it comes to legal practice. Hmm. Sometimes the most important cases are the ones that you don't take, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you take a case with bad facts yeah. or that's in a bad jurisdiction, you know, we talk about the infamous Ninth Circuit, yes. then you could be setting yourself up for a, a, a monumental loss that's going to result in bad precedent that people are going to be stuck with for years or decades. Yes. And then, you know, then sometimes there are those where you realize it's an opportunity to undo bad precedent. So you take, you know, you, it's the, you got to have the right balance of, of uh, aggressiveness, risk-taking yeah. and smarts. And yeah. I think uh, we, we really bring a lot of that to the table at First Liberty. And so again, I, you know, it's been one of my greatest professional honors. I, I the way I look at it, Jimmy, is I, I said at the very beginning, I'm proud to be a U.S. Marine yes, uh, yes. because I love serving my country at mm -hmm. First Liberty Institute. I'm still serving my country. I'm still defending the constitution. I just wear a different uniform now. Yeah, I love that. I love it. Well, we are super grateful. Thanks for investing the time in us and our audience. And we've got a lot of military uh, veterans, a lot of people that are serving currently that are going to be super encouraged by what you've said. Um, and also we're going to be praying for you all because we know that this is a spiritual battle and we're, we're in that fight for you as well. We don't want to establish bad precedent. We want to undo bad precedent. And I know that you are super strategic in that fight. Mike, thanks so much, buddy. God bless you, man. God bless. Thanks for having me. You bet.